to our final guest. He wrote that piece about Jimmy Savile and the paedophile culture of light entertainment. He wrote that piece about Julian Assange and ghosting. Every piece he writes is that good. As a writer, he ranges widely, combining memoir and investigative journalism, the devastating effect, and the missing. He is posed as Marilyn Monroe's Maltese Terrier, and most recently he's taken us to Blackpool and Afghanistan and the utterly fantastic The Illuminations. I'm thrilled that he's chosen the salon for the very first reading from his new as yet unfinished novel. It is called Caledonian Road and he is Andrew O'Hagan. <laughs> so I'm going to read something first, right? Yes. Um, this is, as, as Damien beautifully says, it's from, not only is this unpublished, it's almost entirely unwritten um, <laughs> at the moment. <laughs> um, but it's um, highly conceived, as we like to say. <laughs> That's to say it's dreamed of. Um, my publishers will kill me. Don't tell them, by the way. Don't tweet. Um, they'll kill me that I've come out at his instigation to, um, to read from an unpublished work. But anyway, here goes. It's, this is the opening of this new book, Caledonian Road, as it will be. The children woke and Daddy wasn't there. That was the story the only story that mattered, and mum was a bottomless pit of neediness. Then dad died after 40 years, and Piccadilly was almost pink with promise as Campbell stepped from the car. He always ordered the most expensive Uber. It made him stronger, he said to himself. It, it made him handsome, and every day, is a growth day if you know how to read your own past. It was the autumn after the funeral and Campbell felt fully audible to himself as he crossed and walked under the Ritz's golden bulbs, talking into his phone. Self-pity is a disastrous mode of thought, he said to his elder brother. I gave it up at the age of 40, Ewan, and I've never looked back. They'll have to move on. You're coming to the Commons next week, and that's a fresh beginning anyhow. Campbell held out his phone and let his brother's objections melt into air. He and Ewan had always made such a success of what they didn't say, and it seemed too risky to begin arguing now. He lifted his wrist and got a blast of Paco Rabanne. A perfume expert told him that men should always smell a little grim. <laughs> no flowers, but a skin that can faintly remember its own sweat and know about cars, spices, tobacco. You're right, Ewan, he said. England is gone. Uh, Dead, actually. 
Campbell was 45 that summer. I never married, six foot two, prize-winning biographer, the London editor of the New York Times Magazine, a moralist in his head, a blackguard in his life, the best fun in Britain, a half-decent ton in the feathers, and a life-writing hero in his third year as professor of box sets at the London School of Economics. <laughs> he wore a beautiful dark suit. At the corner of St. James's Street, he bent down to wipe a scuff off his shoes and feeling a rush of red buses, he experienced the mastery of self that comes with a good shoe. He would normally have lit a cigarette at this point in the street, but he'd said goodbye to all that, standing now like beer-bomb tree sans cheroute, naked without smoke, but happy in his tobacco-respecting cologne, knowing he would one day be just another of London's vanished figures. Yet the world belonged to Campbell as he made his way to the same old table at the Wolseley. He'd enjoyed, you know, a long self-government in, well, it was an apprenticeship, really, in self-government. And now he was free. The dark comedy of being a professional biographer, a wily essayist, a hard-working man of letters, had finally opened onto an open field of glorious sunshine where he might walk every day unhindered by the crippling responsibility of a growing reputation. He knew a hundred writers who toiled in a state of compressed fear and stylistic torpor, all of them desperate in their careful ways and agonized that they might be forgotten or never, Jesus Christ, win a prize. <laughs> oh, darlings, the indignity. <laughs> what the mess of life and its blaze of events. Jesus, they were all that mattered on the page. Ah, he was stable in his art. And so it was that the infertility of the literary life had come to seem hilarious to him. The invitations on the mantelpiece the sordid little book party bathed in warm Chardonnay, the small dinner, the book signing, the nether wallop literary festival, <laughs> the lifeless introductions to deathless classics. Campbell, when young, was a reliable source of the sudden, vapid column of feeling, the literary excursion to the heart of the matter that made editors' pulses race. He did the radio shows, the TVSs, the brilliantly nonsensical forewords to artists' catalogues. He'd once been a master of the plangent school visit, had done several years hard labor on the Arvon courses, appeared <laughs> in person before audiences in Sydney and Jaipur. Oh, the love, the audiences, the honor. While other people were living their lives, 
Campbell was in an airport lounge waiting for a sad flight to Latvia. <laughs> He'd written books that, quote, changed the meaning of the well-written life, Mail on Sunday, and was, quote, <laughs> the best essayist of his generation, the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> and now, he was done. He hadn't seen, and neither had his variously brilliant colleagues and friends, how empty the little culture was, how unsupported, until one morning he woke up and said no to everything. Everything. <laughs> he wouldn't be one of them. The talented civil servants of literature, grey of complexion and bad of shoe, <laughs> sniffing out reassurance in every department of life and waiting earnestly, oh, for their OBE. <laughs> no, he was saying, no. In all those years of high-flying moralism and career success, Campbell forgot he was a natural arson, and he entered the restaurant with a delicate passion for life and fire. <laughs> On his way over to jo Jonathan, our hero had stopped and kissed a number of people who had something against him. He wasn't thought to have enemies. Indeed, he was famously liked and was considered almost culpably happy. Yet a number of people felt oddly unsettled by Campbell Flynn, as if his busy good nature had somehow failed them by not spreading itself more specifically in their direction. It was common to feel chided by his affability or simply left out. He was practically family with figures whose blessing and support most writers craved, and he hadn't invited them to anything or had them reviewed. Darling, he's the Kim Philby of the literary world, a popular gay novelist whispered to his companion after shaking Campbell's hand. Born in a Glasgow bin shed. He was the heartthrob of St. Andrews, you know, thinks he's God, can barely write. And now he has daily meetings in the Athenaeum where he decides our fate. Jesus. He sat down and Jonathan winked at him from the center of a crucial call. The agent was talking to a former labor frontbencher who wanted to write a series of children's books about the financial crisis. Oh, how lovely, darling, absolutely. I mean, the Victorian poor are massive, massive right now. I mean, and chimneys, oh my God, and wolves. Oh, most definitely. What? Whitechapel, oh, darling, perfect, I must say. A bit of downtown thrown in, definitely. This kind of thing, I mean, kitchens, darling. Oh, the terrible secrets. Oh, money, tell you what. Let's just jot down a few ideas and we'll email Ebury on Monday. It's a series, Norman. I'm telling you, it's a series. You'll have the smartest prize under your belt before you get to book three. <laughs> Who was that? Campbell said. 
One of our ludicrous former legislators, Jonathan said, wants to rewrite Oliver Twist as a way of explaining subprime mortgages to infants. <laughs> Will it sell? By the thousand, my friend. And oh, the Americans. Campbell just shook his head and ordered a glass of Tattinger. His escape route from literary world was well underway, but in hearing such tales of marketing genius, he often became nostalgic for the former world, the sacred afternoons spent among the stacks in his favorite corner of the London Library, the months taking notes for essays that only a few hundred would read. He had emerged from all that biographical work as a man without a biography. And he began to hope that Jonathan wouldn't ask him, please don't, to take another contract. How are you enjoying being the greatly rewarded and hugely respected professor of box sets? It's lovely, Campbell said. Then he smiled. Hmm. I suppose you'd ex respect me more if I was teaching the Victorian novel 1836 to 1900. Not at all, my dear. You already suffer acutely from too much respect. I'd prefer to see you on Celebrity Big Brother myself. <laughs> Don't hold your breath, Campbell said. But too much respect can make a stone of the heart. That's for sure. And I hear they wanted you to be head of the Royal Society of Literature. It's not happening, said Campbell. My bi biographies have set me free. They'll be writing your biography next. Like our friend Flaubert, I have no biography. Rubbish, sir. Rubbish! Just you wait. Some young Oxford person is just hatching as we speak. A beautiful young blonde, no doubt, who'll be going through your knicker drawer in due course. He ordered herring, steak tartare, and a bottle of the Pinot Nero. Did you know Martha's novel about Maud Gone was turned down by several publishers? That's shocking, Campbell said. I'm going to speak to Colin. She's one of the few people in this country actually interested in English prose. And society. That's right. And all those shameful publishers want is a grim copy of something that was unaccountably successful last year. They made themselves feel better by talking about the actors and producers who had turned Campbell's books into films. I'm with Horace, Campbell said at last. Work alone, keep to the study, gather from nature like the bees. I think those successful children of yours have turned your head, Jonathan said. Campbell sighed. You know something, Jonathan? In the 1800s, among the reasons a person could be admitted to the trans Allegheny Lunatic Asylum, along with bad company, the war, and business nerves, was reading literature. <laughs> really? You could be put away for reading good books. That's right, and poems. It drove people mad. The agent filled their glasses. With a cascade of stubby fingers, he said so hello to another agent across the room. Fascinating, he said. He wondered if this would be a good time to broach the subject of the royalties-only e-book deal offered by Newsweek. 
or the invitation to host the Cambridge seminars, or the letter about introducing Jude the Obscure for nothing. Campbell sat up and shook his head. It's all over, isn't it, Jonathan? What's over? Hardback books, literary biographies, novels, decent advances, independent bookshops, a spread of authors, the idea of high culture. Well, the idea of high culture speaking to political reality, Jonathan. There is, I admit, Jonathan said, a significant downward pressure on advances. I've been meaning to talk to you about that. <laughs> a drama critic from the New Yorker came over to compliment Campbell in a recent essay he'd written about the paranoid sublime in Mr. Robot. For a second, while the man stood there with his small shining head and his brand new teeth, Campbell wondered to what degree his reputation was simply an aspect of other people's fear. And the thought merged as the critic spoke with an image of a bowl of fruit as painted by Claude Monet. To be sure, Campbell felt himself disappearing in a happy haze as he sat on the banquette, not listening to the man, but seeing how the color of Monet's apple is changed by the yellowness of the adjacent peach. Uh, what an incredible privilege that was, Mr. O'Hagan. I have to say, I was reading along um, as, as um, Andy was reading, and I have to, it's really a work in progress, isn't it? A lot's changed line by line. Yeah, since yesterday. That, that <laughs> funeral wasn't mentioned. It was the last day of autumn when yeah. I read it, and now it's, the, the, I think, the last day, uh, the day after the funeral. It's one of the things, as you know yourself, that you find is that, you know, you're trying to wrestle this beast to the ground, for four years, and every day is a new day of self-loathing, um, and uh, a new day of addressing the problem. And so, you know, it's actually quite nice reading something so early because, you know, hearing it work with an audience is something yeah. that actually is a bit of a tonic. And um, how how advanced are you with it? And you know, I mean, is it a novel that you've already sold? Is it a novel you're expected to deliver? It's, it's a novel that's under contract. So it's for favour? Yeah. It's, it's Editor's not here. It's checking. Uh, yeah, don't tell them. But Safe that's space. It's under contract to favour here and, and in several other places. So, um, yeah, it's, I'm well on with it, but, you know, I keep doubling back. I've always found that with writing of books that, you know, it's this, it's this weird dance with yourself that goes on for years. Um, and I'm always going back to the beginning. Right. I mean, I was, I was struggling to, ch to change a word at the beginning of the Illuminations as it was going off in its absolute final form. Really? I was still staring at the opening saying, could I just take that beat down one? It's so interesting because normally the beginning, or at least the thing that people first write, is the thing that they don't change. It's the, it's the kind of foundation stone, it's the Alexander stone of the rest of the book. But you're talking about going back and, thing and changing the place where you started. The thing I often don't change is the end, actually. I usually write the end first. Right. I wrote the end of the Illuminations first. Did you? Yeah. 
I need to get all the tears over first. You know, I need to sort of sit and blub at my desk for a few hours before I sort of then clear my throat and go to the beginning. Right. So I knew and tend to know what's, ha- what's going to happen at the end of these books. So, um, so you know what happens at the end of this one? I've got, a good, I've got a strong idea, but I didn't actually write the sentences for the end of this one right. because th- there was a few things that I was looking at. It's quite, this is a big novel. Big like as in E, big or big, big as in, right, chunky. Yeah. I mean, I've never, for those of you who have never seen anything of mine before, I've never written a big book before. They've always been yeah. quite short. And yeah. But, you know, there comes a moment where you realise that the subjects you're trying to wrap your arms around uh, won't be served by 250 pages. What is the subject you're trying to wrap your arms around? Well, I suppose the, the one of the things that's been said to me, I've been in this business for, I think, 25 years, published my first book in my early 20s and from that moment to this moment there's a thing that's always been said to me by everybody in different countries which is um, why are none of your books funny this book is funny well that's the thing I mean I I mean I wasn't ready to try to write that comic big novel that I felt I mean I think I had to be honest with you Damien I felt I had to be older to write the book that I now I'm trying to write. Right. That, that's not to say the other books are immature, but they were chamber pieces, those books. There's a wonderful moment. Robert Gottlieb, the American editor, uh, who was a big guy at Knopf and then an editor at The New Yorker for a number of years, has just published his memoir. And there's a great moment in that book where uh, one of his long-standing authors at Knopf, uh, Tony Morrison, where he, he just published a book of hers called Sula. And he said to, now you've written a number now of, you know, almost quartet pieces, like mm. they're, they're small chamber pieces, they're full of a certain delicacy, mm. and you obviously had to write them and write them that way, but now it's time to bring on the whole orchestra. And, you know, it's an incredibly sort of probably unwise thing to do, although it worked for her, mm. you know, because Song of yeah. Solomon, Solomon came next, as it were. Our beloved came next. You know. So um, do you feel for you that that is about... Um, is that about technical skill? Is that about confidence? Is that about just not caring? I think you need to know more to write a book like that. I think one of the things that what? you don't know when you're 23 is that you don't really know anything. You know about one thing. You know mm. about your girlfriend, or you know about how much you hated your parents, or how university was boring. You know, but can we tighten this? I feel it's dripping down or whatever. Um, yeah. Um, but. You don't really know enough about what in the 19th century was quite freely and easily called society. Yes. You know, you don't know what the inside of a gentleman's club looks like. You don't know what it's like perhaps on the daily life on a housing estate in Huddersfield. You don't know, as that happens, we do because we grew up on them. But you tend to not know enough of a spread of things unless you have a particular kind of imagination as Dickens and Trollope did, although they did a lot of research constantly. And one of the things I've always been uh, trying to instruct students when I've got them to do is to invest in research. I would always be amazed to students who would turn up, you know, to talk to you, and it would be clear that they'd never, ever in their whole lives been inside a factory. That's fine not to be in a factory if you just have no reason to go into one. But if you're a novelist, you ought to stop the bus if you still take the bus, 
and they should. I remember Harold Pinter saying that his whole writing fell away when he stopped taking the bus. <laughs> I've never forgotten that. Um, but you know, the business of getting to know things, if you're going to write that big, capacious, baggy, you know, novel that was so endearing to the Victorians and perhaps isn't so looked for now among the reading public, I wonder why, but... I mean, you mentioned Trollope there when you mm. were talking about it, and when we were talking on email, you'd said the main thing to know is just this big kind of Trollopean not sure if I'm saying the emphasis in the right place, Trollopean, Trollopean, my Trollope is rusty, um, uh, 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 kind of novel. And I, and I started to think, what does he mean by that? Is he talking about the, the ambition in terms of the size of it? Is he, is he obsessed? Is he thinking about money? Is he thinking about character? I was starting to think about what Trollope is known for. What, what is it that ab about him that has kind of attracted you at this point in your writing life? And what is it that the book's going to express of him? I think that writers are always in conversation with their forebears. It's one of the things that you learn to be accepting about, I think. Um, there's a, there are a lot of novelists in this room who have an ongoing dialogue with writers that they have loved. That's not to say you think you are them. I don't think I'm Trollope. He was a great master of a particular form of the British novel. And, you know, but I'm in dialogue with the notion that the country that we're living in today is capacious and perverse enough to merit a proper account, a big novel that actually tries to wrap itself around some of the deepest ironies, financial, moral, ethical, in terms of sexual identity. I've never read the novel that I want to read about the way we live now. So it would be sort of childish of me as a novelist of some standing in terms of time and uh, effort not to take that on, especially as I've always been quite an enthusiastic journalist, as some of those Victorians were. So I've never been shy of going out. You mentioned at the top, you know, about those pieces about Assange or paedophilia at the BBC. I mean, those pieces. I mean, those pieces each took me eight or eight or nine months each. How do you decide when you find when you encounter a story like that, um, and you, you know, a, a Savile or an Assange? And you find them, and do you, how do you decide that you want to do it fictionally or that you want to do it as a piece tentatively or purportedly of non-fiction, and how do you patrol yeah. that very porous boundary? You know the answer to this yourself because you wrote Maggie and Me. Now, that could have been anybody's first novel. A great success it was. He knows that. You all know that. It was a fantastic book, and that could have been a great beginning of a, a fiction writer's career a person who grew up in that environment with ambivalent feelings about the political culture, about their own sexuality, but that is what is traditionally called Truman Capote's first novel, as <laughs> it were, or anybody's first novel, but it's a non-fiction book. You, that just, the answer to your question is that you know it on site. That was a choice. You know, yeah. well, as far as I'm concerned, every time there's, I mean, when Julian Assange contacted me and said, I want you to help me write my book, well, I was just so intrigued by the idea of having access to a particular, very important, I thought, aspect of um, modern life, the relationship between individuals and power, hardly a new subject, but new manifestations of it have occurred not only in our time, but in the last only last few years. And I thought, I'll certainly go and help him. But over the course of that experience, more and more of what he revealed to me 
about the nature of narcissism, about the nat nature of um, self-obsession, about the nature of distraction. Um, obviously, I began to think about that in relation to him as a separate book that I would write, or a piece that I would write, as it turned out. And I had the most fabulous notes. I mean, journalistically, there's only four, maybe three or four times in your life as a non-fiction writer, if you're lucky, when you have notes that are actually just gold. You just know they're gold. And I lived with them for three years without publishing a single word of it. And at one point thought I never would. But they were so good. Why did you so think true. you never would? Why did you think you never would? Because I felt quite loyal to him for quite a long time. And I knew Why? that although I had never had any intention to ridicule him, I saw that he ridiculed himself. And there was a decision I had to make about whether I was going to allow him to be harmed by his own words and deeds, as I feel his reputation might be by the book. So it's the opposite of what you sometimes would imagine or what some of the journalists imagined, which was that you set out to harm him. Actually, the opposite was the case. I set out to protect him, but I couldn't ultimately protect him from the truth. After all, wasn't he the man who set himself out to be the prince of a new way of identifying and relaying truth? So I felt it was entirely consistent with both our instincts to tell the truth about what that in a documentary form but it was never a novel for me, Damien. There was never a moment where I thought, oh, this would make a fabulous novel. I mean, Jonathan Franzen made a novel out of it. I mean, that material was available. And Jonathan Franzen was per perfectly generous when I met him and recognizing that he'd read the material and he saw it as material for a novel. It was never material for a novel for me. I felt that you, the reader, wanted to be inside that actual house with that actual man while he was actually eating lasagna with his actual hands, and I was reporting it. Yeah, I like the comedy of it as well, so I, I thought that might be lost in some Oh, no, there's, there's, there's plenty of ludicrous comedy in it, and of course the lasagna eating with the hands is one of the things that... He denies that, by the way. He denies that, the, tab the table manners. It was amazing that... It was amazing that that was the thing that offended him most. <laughs> it seemed to me that sort of, you know, when you're dealing with this sort of possible portrayal of sort of, you know, grade A narcissism with an international impact, that your table manners might be a kind of afterthought when it came to what offended you most, but that was the only thing. But that I think that's him. because it's one of the one of the things that's real and one of the things that could be verified is real by the people around him. And I think that that is is tangible. You know, you can hear it, you can see it, you can smell it. You say of him, yet it hadn't felt like creating a character in a novel so much as writing a voiceover for a real person who isn't quite real. And that sentence really stood out in, in that piece for me. I think that not only the Assange story, but it was true of the BBC story as well, but I had to keep quiet. I had two sources who were ingrained in the whole BBC culture who, amidst the hysteria of people talking about paedophilia at the BBC and surrounding uh, the hysteria around individual characters and a kind of tabloid frenzy that we often see in this country, that there was a deeper story of a long, longer-term, historical, almost clubbable, society of abuse at the BBC. And the material was so um, you know, new that I had to sit with it a long time and had to protect those sources for a long time. But to bring us back round, I mean, when you're involved in that kind of research, 
that research, you know, hunger, if you like, doesn't stop when it comes to writing a novel. You're just st you're storing up the energy for the moment when you merge the two sides of your the two moons that you have going. You know, and I've never actually, although I've written you know five novels, I've never written a novel that was based on material in society. I'd always just focused on one group of characters and stayed with them. So, you know, it's a new it's a new direction. So who are the group of characters in society that the new novel is based on? Where are Campbell and his kind living, and why is it called Caledonian Road? Well, wh one of the things that's never left me, nothing ever leaves you as a novelist. I mean, I, I was looking at material. I had to move boxes in the country the other day, and I saw that I've now got you know, 45 boxes of material that I've just collected over the years, including report cards from school and nonsense that... Some of it's quite good, though. I mean, there are, I mean, the report cards are hilarious because, do you remember, you'll know this, that in Ayrshire schools, they used to, no matter what it said in your grade box, the worst thing that could happen to you is that the teacher could write something across your whole report card, and it was always two words, easily distracted. <laughs> remember that? And all, every single one of my report cards is easily distracted, written across, and one of them has an asterisk, and you go to the bottom, and it says, he loves being the class clown. Unfortunately, they like it too. <laughs> um, you know, that's where novels start. But um, material, um, you know, building up over the years and realizing it would be used in a novel eventually. And I noticed that, for example, that in one of the boxes, I'd taken a lot of notes when I lived at King's Cross in the 90s. Yeah. I used to, I mean, as many of you will know, King's Cross is a different world now. That if you remember how it was, in 1992, when there was that, those cobbled streets behind King's Cross Station and those gas, gasometers as we called them in the north, and the Regent's Canal, and it was a very different world. And I lived there for a, a few years and uh, got to know a lot of the women who worked in those streets. How? In a professional capacity. <laughs> and they were always, well, they were always just like, I mean, I, I know you're supposed to think how horrific, how desperate, how they just seemed like girls that I went to school with, a lot of those girls. You would have thought that. They probably were girls that I'd gone to school <laughs> with, in my case at Moscow, but anyway. They knew you well. No, they were always um, chatty, and I started interviewing them. And so, so I collected material even then, not so quite So can long. I just say, just go back a wee minute, like mm. you started interviewing them. How does, how does that work? You walk up to... You walk up to somebody, a woman who's working in the, the street behind King's Cross, and you just say, I want to talk to you. And they go, yeah, you all do. It's <laughs> £95. Right? I mean, how, see, no, see, like, where does that impulse come from? And how, how, how do you have that? Well, you know that extra phrase, you know, he'd get a piece at any door. It was a bit like that. I mean, I've always had, it's my luckiest trait, I have to tell you, in my opinion, it's my luckiest trait as a writer, is that I can always talk to people. I've never had any trouble with it. I've been, you know, in so many of those situations where you would expect it would be impossible. But I just keep going back. I mean, I kept going back to the girls. I mean, they would say when you're going back, you're looking for business and all that, and I'd stop. I mean, I was 22, you know, so of course I was looking for business, <laughs> but not necessarily from them, and I had no money anyway. But I remember stopping and saying, you know, how long have you been here? And they'd be like, oh, who are you? You're the cops and all that. And but after a few months, they'd get to see you, and then we'd sit down, and then I used to bring them tea down from my flat, and then we'd smoke out in the street, and then I started inviting them in. I mean, it became quite <laughs> detailed. 
And of course, it was a nightmare for anybody who'd walk in. They'd be like, why has he got all the hookers in his flat? Um, my mother lived in Scotland, so that was okay. Uh, I don't know. I just, I've just always found it necessary to get the material. I've never guessed anything as a writer. I think you need to get the material. Do you think, I mean, you, met, you, you, say, if, you say of Campbell, he was born in, in, near Glasgow or in a Glasgow bin shed, yeah. and that's much more like where you were born and where I was born. Do you think that having that kind of background of, of, of nowhere and undeniably of nothing makes it easier for you to have those conversations, to ask those questions? To I remember a, a, right at the beginning of my career, I published an essay in the London Review of Books. It was at the time, many of you will remember this, I'm sure, of the murder of James Bulger by those two 10-year-old boys in Liverpool. And there was this almost festival of gleeful hatred in the tabloid press, you know, trying to create, I would argue, three tragedies where there was already one. And they were determined, you know, they were publishing photographs of nooses with the boys X in them and so on. And they wanted, there was a kind of festival of vengeance going on. And I went to Liverpool and I went to the trial and I was quite young, 1993, and March 1993. Um, and I ended up writing this essay about my own childhood, about growing up in a housing estate in Ayrshire and how a certain degree, um, I mean, different in degree from what they'd done, but not different in essence from what they'd done, which was to blur the relationship between reality and imagination so far that a cultural, violent, recriminatory abuse became a kind of normalcy for them. And I wrote this essay, and it caused mayhem overnight. They published it in the London Review, and then I remember The Guardian bought it to republish, and it was one of the most unfortunate headlines that ever, I've ever had in my career. <laughs> it was in the front page of The Guardian that said, Confessions of a Literary Editor. <laughs> and it was a picture of me looking incredibly thuggish and guilty. Um, but it was a piece about what it was like to grow up in a culture where, you know, you didn't, exp there were no novelists in the world to you. There were no playwrights. You didn't bump into poets. I mean, this isn't a prolier than thou competition. You know, it just, it was like that. There was nobody there who did that. And I remember Alan Bennett phoned me up and he said, with a childhood like that, you'll never run out of things to write about. <laughs> and is, is that why so far you haven't written what you might call a straightforward memoir? I just couldn't write a memoir with my parents still alive. My father's dead, but I couldn't do it to my mother. It's why? What, 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 too what, painful what, for her. I mean, for her? Okay. Too painful for her, certainly. I mean, and my brothers, I mean, I think that, you know, I'll come to an agreement with my brothers that, you know, a writer is a particular kind of beast. And it's difficult for, I mean, I, don't, I know that you've had experiences that are, you know, raw in this department. I mean, it's no easy matter. If you live in a literary culture and we all come to a beautiful thing like this, a salon, or we read books regularly and we have an account with Amazon, you don't know what it would be like necessarily to live in a world where books are an enormous threat and a species of grasping. And there are cultures where that exists. And I'm afraid, you know, although my brothers have been enormous, enormously supportive and so has my mother and my father, I think they found it quite painful, even in the small amount that I have dealt in. So I couldn't, 
go the full hog and describe what it was like in the 1970s. Um, I just wouldn't do that to, to them. I mean, Evelyn Moore said a famous thing that I've never forgotten, which is, and I believe it, she said, when a writer's born into the family, the family's finished. <laughs> and I've tried my hardest not to allow that to be true. But, but is it not also the case that even if they were all gone or just not listening or not reading, um, that, that also there's something about you wanting to protect the source of you, of the stories that, that shaped and made you? That's an interesting question, Damien, because, uh, as you know, it's very easy in this business. And there was that for, the f I think for the first five years of my career, every single time the phone rang, it was somebody from The Spectator or the New York Review of Books asking me to climb into a hole in Paisley and write a 12,000-word piece about it. You know, in other words, you quickly become the expert on poor people. And even by that point, I was living in London, you know, I'd been to university, you know. The world of poor people is a very different world now, even from what it was then, but we don't need to get into that, but I mean, maybe one of the reasons I want to write this big novel now is to finally try to address some of that, but you know, you spend a lot of your time not wanting to be this sort of um, poverty correspondent for The Guardian. Yeah, well it's not, like not that they're running out of people who are already in that role, but <laughs> you know, I certainly was never going to be happy doing it. No, and, and, and me neither, just like I don't want to be the gay correspondent or make anybody else the whatever um, correspondent. How does your journalism feed into, into the new book, into this big new sprawling? Um I think it's gave me an enormous amount of confidence about going into the world and finding out things and bringing them back for the book. I mean, Thomas Wolfe, uh, Tom Wolfe, who was never a great favourite of mine, he nevertheless did have one of, has said one or two important things, I think, to offer um, other writers. And one of them was that you have to get out of the house if you're going to be a contemporary novelist. You know, if you're the kind of contemporary novelist who's writing about a particular relationship inside a family, maybe you sit at your desk for four years and you pr produce your masterpiece. I'll be the first in the queue to buy that book and to applaud it. But if you're not writing that book, then what you're going to do is try and set a bunch of Romany people who are living in a particular street in London into your novel, you had better get your sand shoes on, take off your suit, get on the bus, and go and be with that community in every way that it's possible to be with them so that everything that's in that novel has not just the ring of truth, but a deep, almost at the level of language, at the level of sentences, is going to be engaged with the moral universe that they are struggling within. Mm. That's why the research needs to happen, not just so you can get their names, you can get that off Google. And I would say to the younger novelists, you won't get that novel off Google. Mm. You'll get that novel off looking into the eyes of those children who are here only three years from Serbia, Herzegovina, trying to find a way to live in a community that hates them. Look in their eyes and listen to the daily rhythm of their lives and then go and write your novel. And those are the children's whose eyes you've looked into. Yeah, that's what I'm doing now. And I think that, you know, it's cheeky to come here and read a few pages, but, you know... It's not. It's, it's, it's a, in a way, it's... If you're going to sing these songs, then you need to clear your throat, you know? And you need to get... Begin to test the tone of it. And... For me, um, you know, as you may well feel, your book's a bit 
like children, you know, you feel proud of them and you, you straighten their tie and wet down their hair and send them out into the world each time. Um, but every time you start a book, you're starting from absolute scratch. Not Having written a novel is no help to you when it comes to writing a new one, in my view. Okay. <laughs> Questions for Andrew O'Hagan. Mickey, please. It's a question about how we know ourselves, when we know ourselves, and I think this goes right back to Philippa's point earlier. You know, at 23, what did you think you know about yourself? And as you are now, what do you think about that 23-year-old and where you are? I mean, 20 years from now, are you going to look back and think, fuck, why did I write that big sprawling novel? I should have waited till I was you know, 60. I mean, it's consistent in my eyes. You know, th I knew one thing. I knew that I had to go and ask people questions in order to write anything at all. My first book, The Missing, was based entirely on what we used to call pavement pounding. I went to Gloucester during the enormous revelations around the murders associated with, committed by, indeed, Frederick and Rosemary West. You know, I was a 23-year-old. I was standing in that street, Cromwell Street. The world's press was there. And I mean 400 people with satellite vans and, you know, scrums and you know, deals being made and, you know, um, checkbooks being produced and I just stood there and I waited and I waited and I waited and eventually there was nobody in the street except me and the policeman outside the house. I wasn't interested in the pornography of the violence. I wasn't interested in tabloid stories about the dismemberment of women. I wasn't interested in this sort of rather gladiatorial combat business of a serial killer versus women. What I was interested in was the fact that 13 of those women had gone missing and never had been reported as being missing. They all had families, doctors, boyfriends, educators. Nobody missed them. And only by staying there long enough did I start to speak to the people in the street and did I start to build a picture of what had happened in our communities. So I didn't know anything. I just knew to ask, you know. But I think that was quite a big thing to know. And it, it wasn't self-defining because there was a lot of moments of complete doubt when you're, when you're working on that kind of story. You think, Jesus, how, you know, because you see other people produce their stories in the papers. And I watched multiple big reveals of what was going on in that story, but waited. And it took two, not two years or so before my book came out. But I think the thing is you've just got to absolutely, fearlessly go outside and ask people stuff. And not imagine that you're in some superior ivory tower of discernment and intuition where you don't need to talk to human beings. He's still asking. We are very glad that he is still asking. Please join me in thanking Andrew O'Hagan.
amazing.